Our latest episode sees CEO Brian Duffy and the Deputy Editor of British GQ, Bill Prince, talk about his career, his passion for watches, and what to expect this year from some of the most luxurious watch brands. So hello everyone and welcome along to the Watch of Switzerland uh, the latest podcast. My name is Brian Duffy, I'm the Chief Executive of the Watch of Switzerland Group and uh, delighted that, uh, that you've, you've tuned in to join us. Uh, delighted to have a very special guest here today, an old friend, uh, uh, Bill Prince. Uh, so welcome, Bill. Thank you. You're very kind to invite me onto your podcast, Brian. Well, uh, delighted that, that uh, always very interested to hear what's going on in your life and hear your, your views of things. We've known each other for um, for some years, going back to the fashion world when I was uh, with Ralph Lauren, but um, certainly seen you a lot more recently in the world of watches. Well, we've been fortunate, haven't we, Brian, because we've seen each other at various watch events and yeah. obviously every year we've uh, seen each other we're both moving quite quickly through Basel and um, Watches and Wonders, as yep. it's now known. So we don't yep. really have a lot of time to talk yep. because we're going to our separate meetings and yep. we have a limited amount of time to deal yep. a lot of work done. Yep. So it's really nice to be able to sit down and actually talk about what this world means to us. Yeah, great. And I'm really looking forward to our chat. I should should have said in introducing you, you're the deputy, deputy editor of GQ. Uh, you've been there for uh, over 20 years and uh, somewhat of a, of a fixture in the world of, a, of fashion and journalism and uh, watch journalism. Mm, it's a fantastic title and I get so many opportunities yeah. to explore lots of areas that I find fascinating and yeah. watches obviously being one of them. Yep, and uh, Gentleman's Quarterly started as, I was, uh, I was in America back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it was all about fashion. But just a bit about you, Bill. So you're a Londoner? No, you? actually not. No, I was born down in Devon oh, right. um, too many years ago to mention yeah. on air. Uh, where I grew up and then, like most men of my generation, particularly if they came from that part of the world, desperate to get to London. So I came and did a uh, media studies course at what was then the Polytechnic of Central London, it's now Westminster University, which was non-vocational. I mean, you could go and do an NCTJ, as it was called, which taught you shorthand and law, all these important matters. I chose not to do that, so I spent three very eventful years um, running around London, forming a band, playing in bands, yeah. following music, which when I completed the course after three years, gave me my passport into becoming a freelance writer, which said in those days meant writing for sounds, as it was, oh, until yeah. it closed later on, yeah. and then after that, the NME. So my background in journalism started really in the weekly music press, yeah. which I have to say for a young man in his 20s was pretty much the best life one could have. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And London, and what must have been the uh, 60s and 70s. Yeah, well, I got here in 80s, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I kind of caught what was the end of that sort of whole 70s punk boom. Yeah. Uh, the 80s, I laughed to my editor, Dylan Jones, and I, we, we lived very parallel lives at that moment, but he was very much into what I would call the 80s dance club scene. So right. he was going to the uh, mud club and going to... Blitz and going to these fan- and the fantastic sort of uh, dance clubs. And I was probably more closer to the sort of indie rock scene. So yeah. I was in these terrible dives that Dylan would never have been seen dead in. And uh, so we basically had, we had the similar experiences of being in London at the same time, but very different experiences yeah. in terms of how it all turned out. So his career took him into launching the style press, in effect, for Face and ID and Arena. Yeah. And I stayed close to the music press until... The early 90s, actually. So I ended at Q, which was my last music title, yeah. where I was the assistant editor. And then in 90, I think 
97, I was hired as the features editor at GQ, yep. which was through, I'm sure it's the same in your industry, it's certainly the same in the fashion industry, the idea that it was very much a community of like-minded individuals. So basically everyone knew who everyone was. And an opportunity came up at GQ and um, I leapt at it. Yep. It was time. It was time to go and do something that a little bit broader than strictly yep. music. Yep. And uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing what you've done. And just before we leave, you know, music behind. I was amazed uh, to read that you'd uh, interviewed such icons as uh, as David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Elton John. Yeah, it it really was a privilege, and um, I think we had to be it, we we had to be cognizant to the fact that they have now become even greater stellar stars yeah. as as their fame and the importance that they held culturally in yeah. those in those years. At the time. They were still very, very important. I'm not negating the opportunity. They were still very important, but they probably sat more within the realm of general popular music. But yeah. now they are cultural icons in their yeah. own right. But what what I, what I take away from those interviews and meeting those people is that is that there was a their level of global fame, their yeah. celebrity, but also the fact they were working artists all the time. Yeah. They were incredibly powerful individuals to yeah. meet. I mean, you can see now, you can recognise what gave them that longevity. Yeah. They, are, they are, in their own way, just geniuses at man managing their careers, yeah. their talent, and also managing people's desperation to be around them and to meet yeah. them, which is tough. Yeah, no, sure. And, and you know, some of the wonderful partnerships that have been, we obviously think of Lennon and McCartney, but also yeah, Keith Richards and uh, Mick Jagger. Yeah. What a port, you know, powerful combination they've been. And I, I remember when I wrote up my interview with Mick Jagger, he, he, he'd flown in from New York, I, I believe, and we'd, he'd spent the day at the Dorchester Hotel doing back-to-back -back interviews, and he alone was doing the press for yeah. the, the re-edition of Exile on Main Street, which he'd taken a hand in remastering, yeah. and had also commissioned a documentary that John Batsek had made about the making of the album, which yeah. you'll recall, Brian, was done largely in the south of France, and all sorts of mayhem was taking place. Yeah. He was incredibly focused. He must have been incredibly tired. He never showed it. We spoke for almost two hours about this. And when I came away, I, I was really reminded of the fact that Whilst being an individual superstar takes talent and, and, and opportunity combined, to run a band and yeah. to still have a band with working at that level, I mean, no one can really hold a candle to Mick Jagger in terms of what he's achieved. Yeah. Maintaining those relationships, keeping the rest of the band working and together. Yeah. I mean, we look at individuals like Bob Dylan and I suppose Elton is another example but you know to manage a band for 45 years yeah. I mean extraordinary yeah. 50 now and to stay so cool through all that yeah. that they're still the wild crazy you well, know, I, their, I went to see them. I, I, took, I took my wife to see them in. She'd never seen the Stones. They said, well, yeah. We must go to Hyde Park. It was, yeah. the anniversary, it was the 50th anniversary show they did in Hyde Park. And I was sort of content at that point. I'd seen them probably half a dozen times by then. Yeah. And I was content that if that's the. And they always suggest it's possibly the last time they'll go out. But of yeah. course, we know that they won't give it up unless they have to. Yeah. So I didn't go back two years ago. And uh, Tony Parsons went to see them. Uh, my friend. Uh, um, Dylan, Dylan Jones went to see them. My friend Patrick Humphreys went to see them. These are, these are long-term music fans, and mm. they all came back saying it's the best they'd ever seen the Stones yeah. play. And I was so gutted yeah. that I was being a bit complacent, and I didn't go to the Olympic Park to see the Stones. Yeah. Silly boy. Yeah, I missed that too. One of my favourite concerts of all time was uh, Shea Stadium Wow. with the Stones. And I was living in, we were living in Connecticut at the time, and... And I uh, just remember them being there. They had these big inflatable, when they did Honky Tonk Women, these yeah. huge inflatable, you know, um, uh, models come up and then the planes were just 
you know, flying over, going to LaGuardia and Kennedy. Probably tilting to have a look. Yeah, and uh, and there was, and I, and I felt really proud of them, uh, you know, being these great British icons that were just holding the, the entire audience in their, uh, their fingertips, yeah. But uh, an, uh, an amazing band. And uh, amazing the, um, you know, the experience you've had. Dylan must have been a really interesting. Yeah. Oh, so I didn't get to interview them. I, I, always conf- I always make the mistake of Dylan and Dylan. So unfortunately, I yeah. work with... Uh, my my favourite artist of all time also shares his surname is the name of oh, right. my editor. But you didn't interview Bob. Dylan. I haven't interviewed oh, Bob okay. Dylan. No, yeah. I did ask a question of Bob Dylan once. Yeah, that'll do. He met, yeah. <laughs> it was in a press conference, Brian, yeah. and he's made a film of which I'm sure he's as proud today as he was then called um, Hearts of Fire. But it, it met a very untimely yeah. end. People thought it was a terrible film. Yeah. Rupert Everett was in the film, and they did a. It was directed by a chap called Richard Markland, who had made Jagged Edge. Yeah. Um, so he was on a high in terms of his own film career, and he opted to do a film, which was a sort of a, it was a remake of A Star Is Born, in effect, yeah. with Bob Dylan playing the uh, Bradley Cooper as it is now character. Oh, yeah. And they did a press call on the South Bank, which Bob Dylan came to. Yeah. And um, of course, being a massive Bob Dylan fan, I, I knew that he was pretty good at press conferences. In the '60s, he was famous for t- taking press conferences yeah. and winding all the journalists up. And I learned a very important journalistic question, Brian, which is always ask one question, not two. And I came out with this ridiculous question along the lines of, Mr. Dylan, you said that you did those tours in the 60s for the money. Uh, My second part of the question was going to be, is it fair to say you're doing this film for the money? Of course, I never got to that moment. He said, I did everything for the money. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, Philip Norman, who I got to know subsequently, was writing it for the Sunday Times, I believe, and he stood up and said, Mr. Dillon, have you any idea how bored you will be making this film? Which yeah. was a cruel question to ask. Yeah. And then Dylan shot back, I don't know, maybe you'll be there. <laughs> well, so yeah. so I, I can say with my hand on my heart, I got a very poor question away to Bob Dylan yeah. and I got okay. a response. Yeah, well, that's, that's impressive enough for me. One of my icons too, Bob Dylan. I love his story and love it, the whole you know, uh, Woody Guthrie yeah. inspiration and uh, all of that. Uh, fantastic. So uh, watches, um, mm. where, where does your love of watches come from? Well, I was recalling this as I was arriving here today, Brian. I'm, I found quite recently my very first watch that I recall ever being handed to wear, which was a Timex. I found it in, as most people do, I found it in a sort of an old Nescafe jar full of yeah. old coins and bits and bobs. Yeah. And I noticed that the lug had, one of the lugs had broken off, so I must have broken it myself or it became damaged, so it must have been put in a drawer and forgotten about so I must have worn that Timex from the age of around about sort of eight to about twelve, I guess. Yeah. And I turned the crown, and it ran oh, yeah. for under a minute. Yeah. But this this Timex, it was just a lovely black dial yeah. Timex, probably about thirty-four millimeters, tiny little watch, which I remember was on a NATO strap. Long since oh, gone, yeah. I can yeah. remember the nylon strap. I wouldn't have known it was a NATO then. Um, so that was my first watch. I suppose if I did break it, my parents weren't quick to replace it because I don't recall really having a watch after that until I probably started buying swatches in the 80s. Yeah. And I wasn't a swatch collector. I wasn't aware of its sort of yeah. artistic acumen. But I probably had three or four swatches. I, I loved, I lo- obviously I would have loved the affordability of them, but I also loved the fact that they were completely classless, genderless. Yeah. No one, and even today actually, Brian, if you, if you, if you notice some individuals, CEO, C-suite class individuals yeah. as we call them, Many, many of them wear a, a swatch to this day. They yeah. think it's an egalitarian timepiece that doesn't... They probably have Patek Philippe and Rolex and others in ho- at home, but they like to wear a swatch. So I've, I wore swatches. And um, I had, through my 
contacts in the music business, I befriended a, a, a nice lady who worked at Columbia Records in Black Rock, as it was called, in New York at the time. I think it's since moved, but everyone who worked for Columbia Records worked in Black Rock, yeah. and it was in Midtown. And I got wind of the fact, this is obviously long before the internet, how you discovered these things, I've no idea. Hopefully through print journalism. Um, I discovered that Swatch were launching a chronograph. So I remember ringing up my friend in Black Rock and saying, this week, it's launching on Friday at Macy's. Macy's has the exclusive. So I need you to go down and buy me one. And she was very charming. She said, of course, I'll do it at my lunch hour. I'll, I'll never forget, I got a phone call back. And I was breathless with anticipation. Did she manage to get me this watch? She rang me back and said, Belle, you made me go all the way down to Macy's. And the queue was ridiculous. It took me like an hour just to get through the queue to buy you your damn watch. And I said, well, I'm very grateful that you did. And to be fair, I still have it. I lent it to my father, who, was, who interestingly was very mechanically minded, or at least he was inspired by mechanisms. He, he, he wasn't interested in cars particularly. That was slightly interesting. I think he liked small. So things like radios, watches... He would happily take these things apart. And then I have to say, when we were clearing out his effects about 10 years ago, I found a book that must have been published back in the 20s, which is on watch repair. Mm -hmm. And the idea that an amateur could buy a book called Watch Repair was quite stunning. Mm -hmm. So I think I inherited some of that interest, but he was never, a, he was <coughs> never particularly interested in watches from a brand or a, or a sort of asset class, shall we no. say. So I was surrounded by watches. So I had Swatch, and then um, I then became a production editor for my sins, which anyone who knows me will understand that, wow, that's quite a process-driven role for you, Bill. But I became production editor. I had worked as a sub-editor at the NME, and then I went over to uh, Q Magazine, where I became the production editor. And it was a monthly cycle. There was no internet. You worked towards a fixed deadline every month. And I bought myself an Oris, and I spotted it on the wrist of the art director at the time. I thought, that's a very nice watch. I'm obviously drawn to quite classical timepieces. I didn't want anything too big or too bling. Um, but what I spotted on it was that it had a sweep date, as it's called. So 1 to 31 ran around the perimeter of the dial. And there was a lovely sweep hand, which obviously gave the dial more dynamism because yep. it, it, had a, um, it had a central seconds and a sweep hand. So it was four dial, it was four hands, basically. But what it allowed me to do was to be able to see, visually recognize when my deadlines were. So how did you do that? How did you? So I would say it was sort of, if it, if it was the 3rd of March, the, um, the, the, the hand would be sitting up at number three. And if my press day was the 17th oh. of March, I could look and see physically on this dial. Yeah. It, it was a measurement. It was a physical yeah. measurement. I've got one inch of time to get this, yeah. <laughs> to get this magazine out. So I, I, it became my faithful timepiece. And I, I wore it every day. And obviously it became, it became my, um, my, uh, my master time uh, teller. But I, when I moved over to GQ, I'm sure it's still the time, but uh, it's still the case. But at the time, car companies were very generous with their vehicles, and if yeah. they, they would often loan you a vehicle. And for one weekend, I became the proud owner, the proud driver of a monumental American car. I think it was yeah. a Cadillac of some kind. I can see you in a Cadillac. So no one else could, because I was probably <laughs> sitting. Yeah, so so yeah. it was a vast vehicle, particularly on London streets. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was here, okay. Yes, yeah, so it was here. It was, um, it was a mad car to be driving around in London. But what I do remember about it was it had this incredibly opulent leather seating. I mean, it was an American car yeah. built for American roads and presumably American backsides as well, because yeah. it was vast. And I remember, I, was, I think I was driving it in to return the car. And for some bizarre reason, I, took, I had my Oris watch on the mantelpiece or wherever I kept it. And instead of putting it on my wrist, I put it in my 
trouser pocket. Mm. So jumped in the car, drove this behemoth to, to the West End, got out of the car, sort of thought, oh, yeah, I must put my watch on. Tapped my pocket, no watch in pocket. Oh. And I thought, oh, my God. And to this day, I'm not quite sure what happened to this watch. I think it descended somewhere into the machinery of this yeah. huge seat. I spent half an hour sort of trying to move the electrics up and down, back and forth, no sign. Yeah. Sent the car back, said, you may find a watch somewhere buried deep into the yeah. cleft of this sort of half tonne of calf leather that I was sitting on. Yeah. Um, nothing returned, nothing yeah. heard back. So then I was without a watch. So cut a long story short, I then turned to my then-style editor, Nick Sullivan, who's still a great friend and now works at Esquire in the US, and he said, Bill, you need to get a watch and you need to sort of take a bit more... Of interest in what's available yeah. and then the search began and I have yeah. to say it was it was it was uh, it was a tense few months because it was it was going to be a, a big investment I decided yeah. it was time and I didn't really know what watch yeah. I should get when are we talking about what sort this of year would have been about 1997 98 yeah. I guess yeah so losing the Oris although it was frustrating at the time was a was, yeah. a, was, a, was, a, was the kick to, yeah. to, to, to look at watches seriously and I'm not sure how I got the invitation because at the time only one of the team would have gone to Basel World and Nick would have gone yeah. and he still goes for Esquire um, but he said well you should come to Basel and have a look around Basel yeah. so we went together it was a fascinating journey and as you know from scale of Basel world you really do have to see it to believe yeah. it I know it's I know it's um, shrunk back slightly in the last few years but in those days it was a, I'd never been to a trade fair really yeah. on that scale I don't think I'd ever been to a trade fair oh me neither yeah so you walk in and you try and describe these these buildings that exist yeah. within the structure of the Basel world hall yeah. um, so anyway I spent several days going around being very quiet and listening to Nick and learning a lot more than I'd known before I went and then, as it turned out, I had um, spotted a watch, which I've now, I now realise I was quite lucky to find, which is the watch I'm wearing, which is a, a Jubilee edition, 125th anniversary IWC Portuguese, mm-hmm. which, as we know, was a, a watch that was really originally designed for retailers in, in South America. I think they were a Brazilian or a Brazilian, I believe. And it's a lovely story that in those days, Swiss watchmakers would take orders almost yeah. directed by yeah. what retailers needed. Yeah. And what retailers in South America needed in the 30s was a watch that was big enough that, um, that could be read and could be used sensibly. And at the time, I believe, they were using old uh, pocket watch movements. So it was a way of repurposing old stock, which is why the Portuguese, long before, long before the Panerai became the sort of yeah. the large watch of choice, the Portuguese was always recognised as being the large watch. But this isn't a large watch. It's, it's, I think it's 41 millimetres, and it's time only, whereas the Portuguese in the 90s particularly was renowned for its uh, uh, chronographs. chronographs. Yep. And I spotted it in a window, um, a lovely man, Marcus Margulies' son. Oh, of course. Yes, yeah. so Marcus... Marcus's son Edward had a small watch shop that he ran himself yeah. in, over in Notting Hill yeah. and in the window was this watch which yeah. it was on a rather garish blue strap which I didn't like yeah. and I rated and I rated and I rated and I thought no now is the moment to do it and um, as it turned out the day I walked in was the day that Edward had decided he was no longer going to run a watch shop in Notting oh, yeah. Hill you were the last customer I, I think I was the best <laughs> and sometimes it pays to wait so I bought this watch he yeah. very kindly changed the strap on it but as, as I'm sure you know, Brian, once you have once you've made a decision on the watch, the watch, you immediately realise there's no such thing as the watch, yeah. because the moment I had a beautiful dress watch with these lovely relief Arabics and the yeah. lancet hands and the, mm-hmm. the steel case, and, um, 
it's a very and a super slim watch actually yep, no, I remember elegant. sharing this to um, Jerome Lombert who at the time yeah. was running Giger Le Couture. he's yeah. now on the board of Richemont yeah. and he very kindly identified that he thinks the movement inside this is a Giger movement because he uh-huh. said he didn't think IWC made time only movements this small or this yeah. thin so actually it's a very precious piece to me now because yeah. it was my first serious watch investment um, but subsequent to that of course I realised well this isn't going to carry me through every day of yeah. my life and I then became slightly obsessed with the um, Chrono Master that Zenith produced, the El Primero. Yeah, and again, it's, it was an interesting moment. And I, I, I do feel lucky because I suppose the moment I became aware of the watch industry was the moment the watch industry was changing because yeah. there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of um, the groups were building out. They were yeah. buying brands. They were reviving brands. There was a lot of activity. So this yeah. agglomeration process was taking place. And I assume LVMH at that moment had probably just bought Zenith. So I think about 1999. 1999, yes. So because LVMH suddenly had a brand that had probably been a sleeping giant in in, in watch terms, I became aware of it. And um, it was a similar process, really. I loved the Chronomaster. I I could see a friend of mine, Carlo Brandelli, who at the time was a... It was the creative director of Kilgar French Stanbury, Kilgar as it is today, although he's no longer involved. Um, he had what was called a rainbow flyback, which was the uh, uh, a flyback function chronograph with a beautiful um, multicolored uh, bezel. And I think that was the one that triggered me, my interest in the Chronomaster. Right. And he was, you know, he had a Piaget polo. I mean, he had a lot of chic watches. Yeah. So for him to wear the El Primera, and I think yeah. it was Carla who would have reminded me or told me that it was the El Primera movement that briefly ran the Rolex the Daytona. Yeah. yeah. And um, I love stories like that. Yeah. And I've done quite a lot of reading around the Zenith story over the years and also the Rolex story. Yeah. And it's such an interesting relationship that Rolex, as a customer of Zenith, yeah. was able to help Zenith through a very difficult time in its yeah. in its own life by ordering large numbers of its yeah. El Primero movements. And then decided not to run it at 36,000. I did not choose to run the Daytona yeah. as a tenth of a second timer. Yeah. So they slowed the... Yeah. They, they decreased the beats... But in doing that, they also made some tiny incremental changes to the El Primero movement, which they were then able to share back to Zenith. So there was always this incredible relationship between Swiss watch brands, manufacturers, what we now know as dial names, people who chose not to make movements but buy movements in. And I think that that when I started to learn more about the industry and the way the Swiss watch industry worked, it became became so fascinating. So that was my second watch. And then I've been very lucky. My wife is interested in watches, so I've been bought some very nice watches. So I received another Zenith. I have a Zenith Pilot for my 50th birthday Um, and a beautiful Rolex Perpetual. Uh, You can't use the term box standard around a Rolex because there's no such concept. But it's in many ways the simplest of all Rolexes, time only. And the most iconic, uh, date just or? Uh, just simple Perpetual, Oyster Oyster Perpetual. So it's um, until... I think when they elevated the Air King a few years ago, yeah. it became it became it became the entry level. I think yeah. prior to that, the Air King was yeah, considered the true. entry level, yeah. but the Oyster Perpetual now becomes the entry level, yeah. and uh, it's it, it's a watch that I'm. I mean, I was very grateful to receive it. It was a birthday present. Uh, I'm a very lucky man. I wasn't sure how often I'd wear it, yeah. and it's so interesting about Rolex as a brand. I wear it virtually every day, yeah. and that is a testament to its build quality and the, the design yeah. of its bracelet. Yeah. I mean, there is a reason why Rolex is such an important brand, yeah. such a powerful yeah. brand. You know, whenever I get asked, and people ask often, just what makes this brand so amazing, it's 
there's so many elements to it, but these indestructible, beautifully constructed, yeah. iconic watches at the end of the day, there's just uh, just nothing like it. Um, so just just moving on. So the last time we have a we we have, we'll lead a charmed life, you know, because the last time that we got together was a was actually out in Dubai when uh, when LV were presenting their uh, their new collections this year, and we'll talk a bit about Basel and everything that's happening. But part of the consequences of what's going on with Basel is that LV decided for for their uh, uh, stable of uh, watch brands to show in uh, in Dubai of all uh, all places. So we had the pleasure of being out there for a few days. Yes, and uh, it was very nice in January, wasn't it? Yeah, so to spend a few days lovely. in balmy Dubai. Yeah. Although they just had a, a very unusual rainfall in the days mm. before. So Yeah, we were lucky to miss that. Yeah, yeah we were indeed. But I uh, saw some great products, uh, particularly from uh, Hublot, with uh, the, the big news of the integrated bracelet. It was it was a powerful moment. I think uh, I think it will appear prescient, or it certainly appears prescient now that... that um, LVMH watch division decided to work together to launch an event yeah. so early in the year as we were discussing because Basel World and Watches and Wonders have now gone back to April May for the for the industry that's a long time to wait to show product and obviously yeah. for retailers and for journalists it's an, it's an age to yeah. to sit on our hands waiting to know what's what so yeah. LV deciding to go out to Dubai then now we know from the footprint of Basel World that the, the Louis Vuitton watch brands sit at the head of the hall in close proximity to one another, yep. but still independent of one another. Yep. They, they keep themselves to themselves in that respect. So what was interesting about Dubai was to see the brands and their, their CEOs working in concert yep. to present product. What was also interesting, and I think Mr. Guadalupe Hublot said that he was showing around about 50% of this year's product. Yep. I think Julian at Zenith was showing probably the same amount. Yep. Um, Tal despite announcing the Carrera anniversary piece, whilst we were there in Dubai, chose yep. not to show it and have chosen not to show their full collection until later. Yep. And they have a big launch coming up in New York next month, yep. uh, which we can, we can talk about. Um, uh, and obviously Bulgari's watch division now run by Antoine yep. Pan was there so to see them together to see them working as a, as a group was, was interesting and I think um, as I think Jean-Christophe Babin the CEO of Bulgari was saying there are other watch producers in effect within the group itself so there yep. could be more brands showing next year so this really comes to the point we'll come on to the product but it, it reinforces the point that these two dates in the diary that we sort of held was our true north in effect one was Basel World and the other was SIH as was Watches of Wonders now have now atomized to a certain degree and we we are very lucky and we are very very lucky and fortunate to be invited to many more events throughout the year in which the watch brands will show their product and I think I think it's I think it's a two-edged sword really I think I think it's really positive to get close to the brands and spend more quality time because as we know from visiting them on stands on at a trade fair they have limited amounts of available time whereas if you can spend two or three days with a brand you can learn so much more about their brand values I think the the necessary uh, uh, what they've given up in a sense is our ability to be able to compare and contrast in real time moving between the the stands and there's also a function in which all of those brands use the fairs as an opportunity to sort of catch up with one another yep. have quiet conversations yep. have secret conversations behind yep. closed doors yep. and and i'm sure that will continue yep. but i think if the brands all choose to go their own way and do their own thing i think it'll become quite disparate and i think the, st- the strength of the swiss watch industry is in the name i think yep. the swiss watch industry is crucial yep. and i think that is a selling point that 
they kind of own, obviously, yeah. outright. And working together and being in one place at one time together, yeah. I think, really reinforces that. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, you know, you've been going there for many, many, many years. My first experience six years ago, uh, uh, SIHH and Basel. Mm. And um, I was so overwhelmingly impressed by it all. I'd, n- I'd never say anything like it. But it, I must say I'm not confident it'll ever be that again. Um, I do think that the, as we know, you know from your customers and we know from our audience that the, the relationship with products and the relationship with retailing is changing. Yeah. And um, the, the ability to... I think one of the most remarkable things about Instagram, and people ask me about Instagram particularly, and I say, well, one of the great things about Instagram for watches is that they can be presented in actual size. Yeah. You, you can basically look at a piece and go, yeah, that's the size of the watch. Yeah. Um, it's a very powerful force. And I think with the rise of social media in particular, but also the general rise in digital, means that brands were having to compete with each other just to get standout over, over a number of days. Yeah. And they realized quickly that if we all... If there's 60, 70 watch brands dropping their product over three days in March or in January, yeah. um, it makes no sense because they're blocking each other out in terms of communicating. Yeah. So they have to, had to move away from a fixed date in the diary. And I completely understand why yeah. they've done that. But to your point, I think, yes, I think the days of bringing a mixture of retailers, clients, and journalists together in yeah. one place for one, one reason and one reason only, I think, is... I don't think that I don't honestly think the needs of retailers and clients and journalists are that different. I just think that they don't necessarily need to be in the same place at the same time. Yeah, no, no, I would agree. And obviously, this year, the other major issue that's affecting life today and affecting all all of what we're talking about is the coronavirus. And so, if SIHH had been as it was previously, it would have been cancelled in January. Uh, the, The Swatch event in Zurich. Time to watch, as they were labelling it, has been cancelled uh, because of the virus, and there's a question mark over whether or not, you know, if things don't significantly change for the better with regards to the virus, whether or not. I have great, great sympathy yeah. with whoever's left to make that decision. Yeah. I, I was in Basel um, at the height of the SARS outbreak, yeah. and it was a strange moment because yeah. in those days, Basel, as you know, was was crammed to the rafters with yeah. with visitors. And I can remember thinking it doesn't feel as full. Yeah. It wasn't open to the public in those days. It was purely trade and industry. Yeah. Um, but it didn't feel full. And I remember yeah. saying to somebody, well, I, where, you know, it doesn't yeah. feel as busy. And they said, that's because flights from China have yeah. been diverted. And yeah. I said, diverted? Yes, they've been turned around. Turned around. Yeah. So they had to act fast then. But if, if you think what the watch industry's exposure is today compared to what the value of that business was yeah. then... I mean, it's a completely different situation for the yeah. brand. So it's very difficult, I think. Yeah. I, I, as I say, it's an awful situation to find oneself in, beyond all of our control. Yeah. But it will inevitably have a knock-on, both in terms no. of how the brands work. For sure. Um, but as you say, LV, fortunately for them, uh, made a decision that then worked out well, and we got the opportunity of seeing what was happening in the Hublot integrated yes. bla- bracelet, to me, is going to be a game-changer for them. I always like to see the Bulgari watches, and yes. I think they're, a, they're a, a misunderstood and um, undervalued uh, watch brand. I mean, they, they do fabulous things on yeah. innovation. I think Jean-Christophe Baban joining Bulgari um, from Tagoya was was obviously he's a, he's he he's now the lord of all he surveys in terms yeah. of high jewelry and now watch and watches together at Bulgari. But having that knowledge and having that depth of experience in in what would a Bulgari watch have to be. Yeah. To, 
to be a watch first yeah. and a bulgari product yeah. and the design and the execution of the finissimo i think is remarkable yeah. and to alight on the ultra slim ultra flat yeah. sector of the market is not the most obvious now bulgari had produced ultra flats in the past and obviously they were renowned for their high complications yeah. daniel roth and gerald genta back in the day but for that for fabrizio the designer and for john christophe to unite in this in this basically this odyssey to produce these extraordinary yeah. ultra-thin watches and then to watch these records fall one after the other. I think yeah. they're, they're on six now, six yeah. records. And we saw the latest piece, didn't we, in Dubai. And again, it touches on what we were saying about Hublot and the integrated piece that Hublot produced. There is definitely a very strong sense that the luxury sports sector is a powerful motor in watch sales. Yeah. And we know of what we speak. We know what's happening with the Nautilus. We know what's happening with the Royal Oak. Yeah. And demand for these pieces is just off vast, the off the scale. Yeah. And I don't think it's negligent at all for a brand to say, you know, this is what people clearly yeah. want. And actually, it's a very functional watch. It's a very well thought through process to yes. wear a watch with an integrated bracelet as we were saying about Rolex they're yeah. comfortable they're easy to wear and I thought the Octo Finissimo was a really nice yeah, no, as was the Uber yep. so another uh, big watch that we, we do know about that's, uh, that we're you know, about to see in, in the, the shops I think by, by the end of this month is the new Commander Bond yes, uh, yes. watch so what, what do you think of it? well touching on our, our lovely life I was, yeah. very, I, was very, I was very lucky to be invited to New York last December um, where Daniel Craig and the team behind Bond were launching the official trailer that's yeah. being launched on the Today program. So I woke up in New York to the Today program. Yeah. There was Daniel and there was Barbara Broccoli and it was, it was a lovely moment. And then later that afternoon, they revealed the piece. And then in the evening, there was a, as, as you'd imagine of Omega, there was a very, very swank party yeah. um, to which Daniel came. But what, was, what I find interesting about that piece is, is it talks to what we were saying earlier about the moving around of the fairs, et cetera, is that um, we're not having to wait for that piece. No. It, it's coming to market in February. The film is out on April the 1st. And again, it's not limited. And I think that's interesting. I think the idea, I think obviously we're, you're wearing the beautiful Apollo 11 50th anniversary gold Speedmaster. There's a place for limited editions and obviously collectors insist that they're limited. No. But for a piece like a Bond watch, you know, why would you want not want to make it available? No. And Daniel, Daniel, we, we are not in any way, um, uh, what's the word? There's no room for cynicism um, around associations such as that. But when you hear Daniel talk about his involvement in wanting yeah. a watch that he was prepared to wear and he wanted to wear, yeah. it was in, utterly genuine. And you can tell that, because I, I speak of what I know, I was, I've had the same process. You can see how Daniel Craig has become interested in watches because yeah. they're so... They're so central to his character and therefore his role. So yeah. he has to be interested. But you can see how much the penny must have dropped in the last sort of 10 years around yeah. watches. And he spoke really, really interestingly about, I wanted a watch that looked like a commander's watch, something yeah. that had a military spec to it, yeah. which it does. Um, I, it, it's, it's, uh, and obviously it's fitted with the, uh, the latest proprietary movement. So it's a serious piece of watchmaking yeah. kit. It's not a simple an associative article to, to yeah. be released alongside the film so i think we can only expect from omega they're having a uh, they're having a very high old time of it they have bond this year yeah. later than they expected i imagine yes the movie was delayed yes so yeah time waits for no man but unfortunately in this case they had to wait for bond yeah. um and it's now coming to the same year as the olympics oh, so yeah. for omega it's just a stellar year i mean yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be uh, an amazing time for them as a brand, yeah, I think. Yeah, and they're a great brand. Omega, one of our biggest brands here in the UK. 
uh, and in the US, and they're just wonderful technical products. And, and I don't know that people realise just, just how good and technical they are, the coaxial movement, the master chronometer, um, yeah. it, how uniquely you know, beneficial that is with regards to. It, it is instructive how, how much work has been done by the brand. I mean, yeah. if you think that the first Omega Bond watch was Pierce Brosnan's, yeah. model, and that was a quartz Seamaster. So yeah. if you think in the space of 25 years, they've yeah. gone from delivering a quartz watch to Bond to making a proprietary mechanism that's now fitted to the latest Bond yeah. watch. And I, as you say, Brian, I think we've seen this, this it's not really incremental, this steady uh, move to make sure that all of their watches are obviously chronometer yeah. rated. You're getting a huge amount of watch for your money when you buy yeah, them. Yeah, sure. It's amazing to see the uh, number of brands that have been bond. I mean, it's clearly an Omega uh, a strong association now. Was Rolex is the other one that we yeah. think about historically, but Seiko have been in there. Uh, Breitling, Pulsar, uh, Pulsar, yes, Hamilton. I think maybe, yes. maybe even at one point. But uh, I try to think of the movie. Actually, there's a great uh, point at which. He's sitting in a train with a, some other gorgeous uh, specimen who says, nice watch, is it Rolex? And he said, no, Omega. It's a Casino Royale. Was it Casino Royale? Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, yeah. it's, there's so many stories. I mean, the, I mean I, we haven't got the time and I don't have the expertise to go into the full story of Bond's Rolexes, but yeah. one of my, one of my favourite anecdotes is that in, 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 the, in Russia, in, from Russia with love, um, Fleming puts a Giro Perigo on on the wrist oh, of, the, of the the wrist of the assassin, and I think yeah. that's such a. And the way he describes the watch means that Fleming either owned it or wanted it, yeah. and subsequently it's the, it was reissued, I believe, about 10, 15 years ago in the nineteen sixty six line, and oh, it's it's a beautiful piece. Again, yeah. you can tell I'm a bit obsessed with date functions, but it was yeah. a full it's a full calendar, time only full calendar. Yeah. So it's a really, it's, if that makes sense. It's a really nice piece. So yes, there's clearly a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest around that, yep. and yeah. So what, we'll we'll have the bond watch. You you, yes. you must have tried it on, I suppose. Yes, no, it really. And it, it, I'm I'm fascinated by how you, you really you you know Brian the, the product has to work. Yep. It's not enough just for a brand to say, well, we have decided this is what you're going to like. Yep. It has to work. Yep. And there's been so much work, and I don't think it gets anything like the recognition it probably deserves. Yep. How, how brands now are really working in a very sophisticated way to give options. So, you know, it's, it comes on multiple straps. Yep. It really offers you the chance to change the look of that watch very and What's quick. your preference? you like the titanium mesh? or you? I do, actually. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. me too. Shark-proof strap. I think yep. it's, very, it's, very <laughs> it's a beautiful yep. strap. I mean, I think, to be fair, I think a lot of the customers will probably choose to wear it on the military um, NATO. But on the I, NATO, I, yeah. But I think the mesh is, is yeah. very clever. I've become much less of a fan of NATO, I must say. I, I, I own the Spectre, which came with yes. a NATO strap, but I am going to change it for a leather strap. It just, to me, it just doesn't do justice to the, no. the timepiece, but it's a, it's a personal... There's something about the balance of a watch on a NATO strap, yeah. because a NATO strap is... is it's not flimsy, but yeah. it, it feels flimsy on the wrist yeah. because it's so thin. But it's so much lighter than the case yeah. that there's an imbalance I find when I try one. Yeah, on. yeah. I yeah. like I like and a bracelet. Nice to have both. Yeah, and you can winter summer. You know, I think the NATO in the summertime makes a bit more sense. Yeah, and, uh, I, think, uh, I do. I do believe it is. It, it, for a watch purchase, it is a go anywhere watch. I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. apart from perhaps black tie events. I think you wear it yeah. every day. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure it's going to do great things. So we're we're going to have it in store. We hopefully get some of the early deliveries but by the end of this month we'll have it in store we already have quite a long waiting list of people yeah. that have uh, registered for it so um so what do we expect from rolex whether or not we see it at basel what are, what are we expecting from uh, from rolex for this year i think i think after i think i think questions that come my way and i'm sure you're yep. fall into two camps one is what what shall i buy which yep. is 
tough. And then the other is, what is Rolex going to do next? What yep. do I, and to which the answer is, I have absolutely no idea. You should yeah. buy the watch you like, and yeah. I have no idea what Rolex are doing. And I have to say, one of the beauties of Rolex and Patek are that they don't, certainly Rolex, they do not communicate apart from their stipulated appearances yeah. at Basel World and they're very happy for everyone and obviously the comment threads under Rolex stories yeah. always go nuts for what's going on and what might be happening yeah. but I think we were discussing this slightly earlier Brian I think I think two things one is I think that they're getting a lot of unfair uh, coverage around the shortage of steel yep. professional watches and, and I don't think they want to disrupt or disturb the allocation sufficiently to become yeah. a steel professional watchmaker um, I know it's frustrating for you. It's very frustrating for your customers. customers yep. It's very frustrating for me because I get phone calls saying, can you find yep. me a Daytona? Yep. And I say, no. I suggest they speak yep. to David. Yep. Um, but they aren't going to really shift the dial on those sort of production numbers. So all of the focus, as we found last year with the GMT Master, comes down to execution and iteration. Yep. So I think primarily... Um, there's there's some way to go in the supply, I imagine, of the GMT Masters. So I think it's fair assumption that with... Well, my guess, is you, as you say, is that the Submariner was last given a, a, a physical overhaul yeah. nine years ago now. So perhaps that's something that they will take a look at. Yeah. But there's also... I mean, it's... I, I'm, Friends of mine, they never even mention it, but Cellini is a is a is a, yeah. is a nice Rolex dress piece. Yeah. I mean, we, they could just as easily come back with a new story around Cellini. Yeah. Um, I think what what else? I think there's. Uh, I like they'll expand the new generation of movements. You know, I think I like take them into. Well, the, that incremental the, improvement, they'll move the, the, yeah. the movements through, yeah. and yeah, they may swap out. I mean, one of the great discussions was should a jubilee bracelet ever be placed on a steel professional watch? Is it yeah. And that'll keep the Rolex, yeah. you know, fan base arguing for the next two years. So yeah. they don't really need to do a great deal more at this point. Yeah, no, I don't need to, but uh, inevitably we'll, they'll do something yes, and yeah. we'll, we'll all go gaga about it. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> and the calls will start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never had so many friends. Yeah, and, it, and it's more and more I'll get people writing to me telling me they were in my class at school and whatever. Can they get a Daytona? Wow. It's, um, uh, almost weekly I'm getting some kind of uh, contact. So uh, the brand's never been in such uh, such demand, but uh, all for good reason, have we been, as we've been discussing. The other thing that's um, really working very, very well, uh, of course, is their, uh, their sister brand, Tudor, mm. working extremely well in the UK. And a very, very cool watch, got its own heritage and story and uh, and charisma, if you like, as a as a brand. Yeah, it, it's been fascinating to watch because we, we knew Tudor, we knew it was the yeah. sibling brand of uh, of Rolex. We knew that Hans Wilsdorf had every intention yeah. to make Tudors as well as he ever made Rolexes. Yeah. So we knew we knew there's no disparity in the in the communication around those pieces, but the, the level of knowledge around Tudor relative to yeah. Rolex was self evidently not there. Yeah. So to watch Tudor establish itself in the UK market and then to be allowed to go its own way respectfully. Yeah whilst Rolex didn't communicate on the relationship but did not deny the relationship is really fascinating to watch. And I yeah. had a colleague of mine, Charlie, visited the Tudor factory in Geneva last year and was blown away by the, the, the sort of the focus and also the authenticity of the Tudor production line in the yeah. sense that it's fundamentally, although they don't offer guided tours of the Rolex factory to the same degree, yeah. um, he, he was comfortable and he was, they communicated on the fact that it's entirely the same production yeah. line in effect. It's not the same production line, but the equipment and the technicity yeah. and all and of the, the... And the precision. Yeah, and the precision. The detail. And yeah. the, it just comes down to, a, to a, I suppose, 
there is a there is a level of refinement that we recognize in Rolex in, yeah. the, in the oyster case and the yeah. bracelet, which isn't required in a Tudor because it was as Hans Rolsdorf stated at the beginning, it was it was the everyman watch. Yeah. It, it was meant for somebody who had a rugged life or did a yeah. robust job. And they wouldn't require it. Naturally, they would feel uncomfortable wearing something with the level of refinement that a Rolex yeah. had. But um, I know, I think it's been a joyous journey. And the 57 is an amazing piece. I think that, that's great. Yeah. And the GMT, I've got to yes. tell you, the, the waiting list for the GMT and tuner are almost the same as, a, yeah. as Rolex. Yeah. And, a, and I think, you know, commercially, that was a very clever thing to do to mm. effectively make that, that connection much more overt than, uh, than had been the case previously. Well, your, your, your school friend is my barber. So my barber oh, yeah. got wind of this watch. Yeah. And then, can you get me? And I said, don't even start. No, yeah. I poss- can't possibly help you. He found yeah. he found one. Oh, he did. No, no, but that, uh, Through you, I believe. Really, really cool watch. We're actually opening the uh, first ever Tudor uh, stores. We're going to open it in uh, Westfield, uh, out in Shepherd's Bush. We uh, open that in uh, April, and it'll be the first one in the kind of Western Hemisphere. So, yeah. But there's such a demand and following for the brand. And, what, and what is the store concept for Tudor? What, what, how will you... How will the store itself be finished? It, uh, well, I mean, they have their brand colours. Uh, they obviously have great marketing uh, with their ambassadors. David Beckham clearly been uh, the most influential here in the UK. Lady Gaga and the others association with, uh, with, with rugby. Mm. Uh, so they have a lot of great marketing pieces. Um, the design, actually, we originally had hoped to open earlier. Mm. Uh, but just to an earlier point, it's getting the same level of attention and review. As, uh, as Rolex or the design they've edited a number of times but it's a very, very cool looking store yeah. uh, that, uh, that I've seen from the renderings and you, you'll get a chance to see it for live in April Fantastic and, uh, Yeah uh, and um, just you know I, I, again something that uh, is always interesting to see and we, we've been discussing how you can get hooked on watches and um, and obviously the, it pays to have a few bob to, yes. to do that as well but it's really interesting the way that uh, uh, celebrities and people in either in sports or uh, music are becoming real uh, watch yeah. aficionados yeah. and, and uh, obviously you cover a lot of them in the in GQ we do yeah, yeah. It, I, it's fascinating both internally working at GQ obviously I've looked after the watch yeah. business there for nearly 20 years now and some of my colleagues have a passing interest yeah. some have absolutely no interest um, yeah. and then one or two I can see they start on that voyage, which is yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's purely a process of osmosis. Yeah. We're we are very gratified by the amount of advertising we take from watch brands. So they yeah. spend a lot of time around the product because yeah. they're looking at the, the advertising in the magazine. And at the same time, they see the stories that I'm producing and they're also aware of the fact that I'm often jetting off somewhere to look at another timepiece. And it's interesting to see those individuals who who apparently show no interest and then yeah. suddenly the penny drops and they go, do you yeah. know what, this is something I should care about. And you, men- you mentioned celebrities, in particular sports stars. I mean, you, you talk to sportsmen, particularly footballers particularly, yeah. and, you know, it is a common it is a common object of desire and conversation. Yes. They yeah. spot what... The, the cars and watches, inevitably... Yeah are the two things that they, when they're waiting to yeah. train or they're waiting to go out, you know, yeah. they can sit Not and talk. About, yeah. And they become very conversant in what each other's wearing. Yeah. There are brands who've, who who virtually need, need not lift a finger in terms of marketing themselves because they are the choice of sports celebrities, whether it's the NFL, yeah. basketball players, we know the brands of which we speak. And it's so fascinating to watch that process. And it's yeah. something that's, in, as I say, it's incredibly organic. I mean, no one, no one can be told to, yeah. to start to get interested in watches. But um, 
it's an interesting point about ownership because I have two sets of friends. Some have small collections that they've sort of added to, yeah. and I have friends who are, who are buying watches, trading them in, yeah. and it's interesting that they are not flipping. That's a different project, but yeah. they are. They will buy a watch, enjoy it, and then quite readily take it back and then replace it with a new watch. Yeah. And um, I know you you also obviously help with that process, but. It's um, it's interesting. They don't have that sort of their comfortability factor is very much the the, the purchase yeah. and the ownership. Whereas for others, it's no, I want to build out a library of watches, and yeah. and for them, it's very much, I want a Rolex steel professional watch. You know, yeah. I'd like a, I would like a Patek dress watch. Whatever their choices might be, yeah. and um, yes, and then they and then some of them just get very disappointed and disheartened that the values of some of these watches are reaching yeah. because either they're excessive, they're inaccessibly en- enough that they're being sold at a premium, yeah. or they are vintage or rare timepieces. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, no, I know it is, and um, you know I find the exact same as you, and, and we are fueled by the conviction that everybody wants a watch, mm. and they might not realise it, but it's deep down in a psyche somewhere, as, as you found, you start chatting about it or yeah. or whatever, and uh, and uh, and that passion comes out, and uh, and then some people clearly take it to uh, to another level completely. I've seen recently some of the. Uh, Interviews with John Mayer, for example, yes. and he really knows his watches. Yeah. I mean, he really, really knows them. I'd hate to interview him because it'd be a, it'd be so embarrassing with the, the knowledge that he has. Yeah. And, and clearly, to him, the, the history he loves vintage, particularly loves vintage Rolex. Fan of Rolex. Yeah. And Ed Sheeran is a massive fan of Tudor, isn't he? He bought thirty yes, Tudors yeah, for, for his team, road yeah. crew. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think obviously people, um, people of the stature of John Mayer and Ed Sheeran, if they show an interest in watches, then obviously that telegraphs to others that yeah. perhaps they should show more interest I mean Elton is obviously a huge yeah. aficionado over the yeah. years I mean he's Clapton was Clapton yeah. very very yeah. very shrewd um, yeah. everything Clapton owns seems to be something of museum yeah. quality whether it's his art collection or yeah. his watch collection his guitars of course very yeah. shrewd yeah. very shrewd man yeah. so that definitely helps and yeah. it's um, but Europe I think very simplistically men it's changing slightly but men have not traditionally worn any form of jewellery yeah. A watch, in many respects, represents that one piece of yeah. jewellery every man can wear. Yeah. And I think those men who want to wear something, I mean, yeah. you're wearing a, a, a signet ring, perhaps a wedding ring, but not yeah. much else. So that's always been the sort of jumping in point for yeah. most men, this idea that, well, I can wear a watch and I will wear a watch. Yeah. But for others, particularly the generation who grew up with access to smartphones, have not made the connection with watches quite so readily. Yeah. But all the evidence that I see is that they do. Yes. I mean, they, yeah. they fundamentally hit a point in their lives where some weird seismic moment takes place and they go, yeah. I want to watch. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's something we're asked of often, you know, the millennial generation, Gen Z and whatever. Mm-hmm. But the reality is for a lot of things that we've discussed about watches that they really appeal to this generation, mm-hmm. that they have heritage, they have craftsmanship. They last forever. They're family heirlooms. Yes. Uh, they represent uh, emotion and storytelling. Yeah. And uh, so they really do appeal to this young generation. And they do, whereas the smartphone can do everything for you, yeah. um, it doesn't give you any distinction because yeah. the next person has much the same phone. Yeah. And if it's a different brand, perhaps the innards are the same. Yeah. Um, whereas a watch is an immediate ready signifier of yeah. who you think you are and who you want to present yourself as being. Yeah. And I always laugh, when you go to the beach in the summer, you see men, particularly men of a certain age, and they're walking down the beach and they've got their trunks on, which will be a premium branded trunk. Yep. Ralph Lauren, yep. we, na- we can name the ones we yep. like, um, and their watch. Yep. 
Oh. And they keep their watch on because oh, with, when they're denuded of their yeah. Savile Row suits or their, or their logoed clothing, there's no yeah. other way of identifying their, yeah. their worth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That, that yeah. says more about than anything. I've got this picture of uh, yeah. older guys in their Speedos with their routine caracol. Exactly. Long way they do so as well. Yeah, you, you talk wonderfully about watches. You talk wonderfully about uh, many things. And it's, very uh, kind. It's a, a real pleasure to... To see you, Bill, real pleasure that, uh, to, for you to join us on this uh, podcast. Um, hopefully see you next time in uh, Watching Wonders or, uh, or Basel, if everything goes ahead as planned. Absolutely. Uh, I'm really delighted you could join us today. Well, thank you, Brian. I've really enjoyed talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts.